The Brooklyn NAACP Equity in the Arts and Culture Committee proudly present Conversations. And now here's your host, Rajendra Ramoon Maharaj. Hi, everybody. This is Rajendra Ramoon Maharaj coming to you. I am, as you know, the third vice president for the Brooklyn branch of the NAACP, as well as the Arts and Equity Chair for the Brooklyn NAACP. What very difficult and strange days we have been living through. So much happening in the world. We were thinking of a guest today that we not only respect it because of his heart and mind, but because of his total commitment to education, to activism, to speak truth to power, which I witnessed when I first met him, and just a person who I think will bring a lot of knowledge to your hearts and a lot of peace to your mind with his journey. It is a great honor for our show and the movement to welcome Emery Moore Jr., the CEO of EM Arts, to the program. Welcome, sir. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. That was that was a wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm gonna have to try and live up to that now. <laughs> well, I only speak the truth. Before we get into your journey, I just wanted to talk a little bit about. How are you feeling about the world? How are you as a black man, as a citizen, feeling, absorbing, processing everything that's happened over the last few weeks, four deaths nationally that people know of, of African-Americans, three men, one woman? Where are you, brother? Well, it's hard. How am I feeling? I have a bunch of feelings going on at the same time. I have not always lived in the States. And in the 90s, since I was a child, I always had this thing with, I didn't understand how people could make war. I don't know why that was always a big deal for me. I literally gave lectures on World War II when I was in the fifth grade. True story. That's how much I was fascinated with figuring out how could people do it? How can you kill people in those numbers, how can you commit those atrocities? And since then, I've become a Falun Gong practitioner, which I don't know, a lot of people maybe don't know Falun Gong, but I can't practice meditation in China, CCP. They would intern me. They have people in camps that are taking organs out of people's bodies. And so it's always been this thing with me. I don't understand. And it's not that I haven't been angry at people, haven't had arguments, haven't had fights. I grew up in the hood. We had fights every day. Mm. It's not that I don't understand revenge. It's not that I don't understand cruelty. That's not it. It's just the levels of it. You know, I've often said to people, I was like, if you get to know me, there is plenty of stuff that you probably can dislike and maybe even hate me for. Right. But just to arbitrarily want to take me out because I'm brown and then you're coming out of the tan salon, it's like, I don't freaking get it. Yes, yes, yes. I don't get it. I don't get it. It's such a strange time. And I guess one of the things I'd want to start with with you is when you came to the planet, tell us about your childhood. And you mentioned, <laughs> you mentioned a little bit about like, you know, being able to school folks, but I feel like childhood shapes us so much. I really do. I feel like I've said this on the show numerous times that I feel as children, we evolve into adults 
And I think a lot of our adulthood is working out our childhood stuff. Sure. And so tell us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was it like? Any fond memories? I had lots of fond memories. I grew up in Bedside, do or die, as, as we used to call it. Hey! And born and raised. Shout out. And it's kind of a weird thing because at that time we were considered to be the ghetto. Mm. And it had its own protection in some regards because a lot of people wouldn't come here. We always knew it was home. I even wrote a poem about it one time. If you, you know, why he's trying to take our houses if you think it's the ghetto. Mm. And there was the negative side, right? There's always people who preyed on people, but they were the minority. And that was the secret, right? Is that most people here, hardworking people raising families, including my own, wanting the, the best for their children, wanting to see us grow up and do better. And we had abject poverty here and we had middle class and we were all mixed together. And we were all friends. We went with the school, you know. My friend Richie, I brought him home one day. We're having 18 birthday for me and I had to go get some records from one of my neighbors across the street and I was used to the way they lived and and after we left he said to me please don't ever take me to a place like that again and I looked at him I said but those are my friends those are the people I grew up with you know they didn't have doors and you know probably somebody was having sex in the next room and there's like a little baby running around with no no top on and nails exposed and stuff but I was like I never judged them for being poor Mm. I never judged them for not having, especially when we were kids. We didn't know. We didn't know. We all played together. We all had a great time. And when, you know, we were all in each other's houses, we grew up like a village. Right. And it was wonderful. And it was tough. The flip side is, yes, we were preyed upon. Yes, it was dangerous. Yes, there was knives and guns. And I've been robbed more times than I can remember. And I've been in three full-scale riots, et cetera, et cetera. But it was normal. So we didn't know any different. We didn't know. There was an alternative to it. Mm. But we played in the street every day. Skelly, Coco Livio, stickball, football. Everybody was aunt and uncle. If you needed something, you had it. If you know, you see someone elder crossing the street with a bag in the hand, you took it, you helped them, you did errands, you you were responsible people. And then on the other hand, we had cats out there who were robbing people. We had, you know, when crack came, I knew all those guys who were doing crack who were running, you know, the place. I, one day I, I actually stood in, quick story, I was standing next to a police officer, one of mm-hmm. the few that we had in our neighborhood, because at that time police didn't come here to actually do policing, right? They wow. would kind of drive through, watch people kill themselves, and then keep on their way. Mm-hmm. So I'm standing next to this police officer, and I said to him, I was like, why don't you arrest those people over there selling crack? And he turns over to me and says, how do you know they're selling crack? I was like, how do you not? Everybody in the neighborhood knows they're selling crack. I was like, it's broad daylight on a Monday. What do you think they're staying online for? There's no store there. There's a hole in the wall. What do you Mm. think those people are doing? I was like, if you want, we can go over there and buy crack together and you can prove it. We can get on the line. Wow. That's what they did to us. And trying to pretend like it's on accident, like nobody knows. Of course they freaking know. How could you not know? How do you look at your neighborhood now? And it's so, in many ways, gentrified and there's so many different cultures and communities. What has been lost and what has been gained as a Native son, in your opinion? Well, the violence has been lost. And a lot of the fear has been lost in terms of the crime level because now all of a sudden we have police who are 
actively involved in in making sure that people can have commerce and that you know other ethnicities can pass through and not be harmed specifically. Mm. And I'm positive, you know, the racial thing is obvious, right? They never policed the place until we started to have a different demographic, and that's just a fact. They didn't even fix the streetlight on the corner until it was that time. I mean, so many changes overnight that we grew up with, which they didn't, (laughs) Hancock and Stuyvesant, they actually put a traffic light on there. I cannot tell you how many chalk lines I've seen on Hancock and Stuyvesant in my lifetime, and now finally they put a traffic light there. I don't have problems. I actually like multicultural because I've traveled the world and I speak two different languages and I I really enjoy that. And I don't think it's healthy for people to only come in contact with one ethnic group in the United States of America where we're all supposedly Americans. And I think that's the strength of this country. The weakness of this country is that for some odd reason, there's a significant amount of population that doesn't realize that we're all in this together. If the sky falls, we're all going to be crushed. Mm. But the positive things are I can go and buy a loaf of bread and it's not Wonder Bread. Mm. I can get food from the store that I can actually eat. It's like places like Brownsville, East New York is still food deserts where you just can't get healthy food in that neighborhood. It doesn't exist. You have to go outside of the neighborhood to get it, period, end of story. So we've gotten goods and services. We actually, I can actually pick up the phone. And somebody can come and deliver a pizza to my house or, I don't know, whatever else you want, Mexican food. We now have restaurants. We never had restaurants of note before and certainly didn't have any diversity of food at all ever since I was here. And I've been here 58 years. But the flip side is my parents purchased the brownstone, their brownstone, from my great-grandmother, and it cost them $15,000. And now there's someone on the block asking for a million. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And so all my friends who grew up here can't live here anymore unless they own their houses. They can't rent here anymore. They don't feel welcome here anymore. And when this thing was shifting like this, I literally heard a sister and brother standing in front of one of these new spots on Stuyvesant Avenue. And the the little one was like, oh, look, they're building something new and it's going to open. And the older one said, yeah, but that's not for us. Mm. I had tears in my eyes. It mm. literally said it's not for us. And they were right, because when it opened up, it was a, a quasi-music restaurant thing. It was $16 a person. I was like, who's going to be able to afford that who is not in the, the Manhattan-going population here? Those are Manhattan prices at that time. It's like 2004, 2005. Wow. And of course, now, forget about it. How do you, when you think about your own childhood, and we we talked a little bit about this offline, but I think it's warranted for the listeners around the borough of Brooklyn to hear, what has been your childhood experiences with the police and racism or bigotry? Is there memories or thoughts that come to your mind that kind of shape your own narrative in terms of the police from your childhood? You know, I probably wouldn't speak about this and I'm going to I'm going to do something that I really never do because I trust you and also because of the time we're in and I want to be clear I don't hold any hatred for any police officer or any ethnic group mm. and when I talk about things I'm talking about it from an experiential point of view I had a van pull up in front of me 
when I was on Lewis Avenue between Jefferson and Hancock Street. And I'm going to be real specific so people understand. Around the corner from my house. Grew up here, no problem. It was a cold night. There was an HBO program on. And it was almost eight. So I wanted to get my ice cream before the program started. So I bolt out of the house. I grab my leather jacket. I pull my hood on my head. Expensive leather jacket, by the way. I'm about to cross the street to go to the bodega. And this van pulls up in front of me, unmarked. Door kicks open. And this white cop, and I won't even say white cop, this white guy, because at first I didn't know what the freak it was. I thought I was being jacked. Mm. Door kicks open. I'm looking at the business end of a 357. How do I know it's 357? Because I've seen guns quite a bit, and I know what 357 looks like. It's not even standard issue. In my face, another gentleman jumps out, touching me, talking to me. You have weapons, you have weapons, you have weapons, putting your hands all over me. Didn't identify themselves as police, nothing. And I briefly got a glimpse of a badge someplace with a piece of duct tape over it. They searched me. Got back in the van, closed the door, and drove off. Left mm. me there shaking. I'm looking up and down. There was no witnesses, nothing. I said, they could have shot me dead right then and there. There wouldn't have been nothing. Nobody would have even known. Mm. My mother would have been wondering what happened to me. And so I've had friends who were murdered. Mm. Because when you're arresting somebody and you choke them to death with a baton, you're murdering somebody. I want to be clear. Nothing to do with apprehension. We were fighting every day as kids in the streets. I learned to toe cold when I was like 11 years old because that's what we thought was funny. I cannot tell you how many times I personally have choked out people and been choked out, and no one has ever died. Not one time. If you see wrestling, no one has ever died. So why are people dying when there's a chokehold being used? It's because you intend to kill them not because you intend to apprehend them. The chokehold is a beautiful thing. As soon as a person relaxes, you know you got them, you let them go. It's simple. Wow. You do not continue to press on. And if you are choking somebody with a baton, you have no sensitivity. You can crush their larynx, in which case you cannot revive them. Mm. And if you do not have the training to understand what you're doing to the human body, then you do not have the right to be applying that kind of force arbitrarily because you are killing people, whether you're doing an accident or purpose, you shouldn't be in the position you're in. You shouldn't have the authority you have because you obviously are inept and do not have the training to have the responsibility of another human being's life in your hand. Mm. And so, yes, I have lost friends, quite a few of them. A lot of them were locked up at 16, 17 years old for things that if you were upstate in Rome, New York, you were tipping cows and they would take you maybe to the police station, maybe, and slap your hand and say, don't do that again. For us, they put us in Rikers Island with adults Hmm. who then take advantage and mess you up for life. Wow. So it's not on accident. Anybody who thinks this is accidental is either deluding themselves, not paying attention, or complicit. I can't think of another category. Hmm. I can't think of another category. And all this was going on during our childhood where most days we were having a great time. We played. We had a wonderful childhood. We had a childhood that doesn't exist anymore. We had camaraderie that doesn't exist anymore. That is the sad thing about what has happened 
in our neighborhoods. And it's not gentrification per se. It is really the advent of technology, changing the culture and supplanting the village community. Because mm. kids, we had to go to see our friends. We rang their bells or we stood out in front and we yelled their names. And everyone was eating at each other's tables every day, sleepovers and things like that. It was it was one family. It wasn't separate families. If someone's mother was home during the daytime because they could be or what have you, then they would take all the kids to the movies or something like that when the others were working. And we all trusted each other. And we went to trick or treat together. And, you know, everyone knew everyone. Wow. It's such a reminder of our ancestors and the idea of the village mentality, you know, that you grow up and Mrs. Flagg would tell your grandmother if you were in trouble and there was like an extra set of eyes around the neighborhood always looking out for you. Absolutely. I've always wanted to ask you this question and I'm really fascinated. What came first for you, the artist or the educator in your journey? (laughs) Well, the fact that I'm, I'm considered to be an educator kind of blows my mind in a way. But you are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's one of those things you wake up one morning and you're like, wow, I'm an educator. <laughs> how'd that happen? I was like, that's cool. <laughs> I asked myself how'd that happen. <laughs> so I would definitely say the artist came first because, well, first of all, I was a science geek. Hmm. But we were very physical as kids. We had a physical culture. That was the way it was. You know, you built stuff. You, you know, you saw the little rascals and you went out and you built a scooter or something. Everybody played together and did something crazy. It was always physical. But the arts in the Black community at that time, you know, my people came from down south. My grandfather was a sharecropper and I was the first in my, my line to go to the university. So it was a big deal. And mm. There was a lot of emphasis on get an education or else. If you don't get an education, well, it's either the military or or jail. And I was not up for either. So <laughs> and I loved I loved to learn, right? So I had I loved to learn. So that aspect wasn't a problem for me. I had problems in school, but I didn't have a problem learning. And so I was a an avid reader. I read everything that wasn't nailed down and I ended up going to Bronx High School of Science just because I liked the solar panels on the roof. Everybody asked me, why'd you want science? Because I liked solar panels. I liked the fact that it was a campus. It looked like it was the country, so I liked it. Mm. So I went from Brooklyn to Bronx every day. I was a scientist, you know. I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, I'm going to be a doctor or something like that. But, you know, running was my first discipline. I loved it. Long distance running. Loved it. Not for competition, but because it calmed me down. Like I mm. found peace. You know, I used to run the reservoir up at um, Bronx Science every day around Lima. And I just, it was just a piece that I would get, get into the zone and just be able to focus. It's like, you know, I really like this feeling. This is a great vibe. And so I started studying martial arts, you know, to keep people off my behind, basically, to be able to defend myself better. Mm. And I, I discovered something there, you know, it was like, well, this is, this is kind of sophisticated and interesting and spiritual and deep as a science. Like it's way deeper than the stuff I've actually been studying because it combines physiology and physics and chemistry and botany and, you know, medicine and all these other things. And I was like, this is kind of cool. And so 
you know, most of my life, I dug into the study of movement arts as a result of that experience. I went to dance, I went to Pilates, I went to Laban movement analysis, I went to whatever it was that could, you know, physiology, anatomy, kinesiology. And I love teaching, you know, I loved it. I started teaching in, in school. And when I got out of school, I was so immersed in physical culture and the arts movement. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, I got to make a living. So I started working at New York Healthy Racket Club. And very quickly, I became one of the most popular instructors. And people just loved my classes were packed and people loved it. And, you know, I had very affluent clients and it just kept growing. And next thing I knew, I was traveling and, you know, doing stuff. And it was like moved to Europe and, you know, helped them to grow fitness in Switzerland and Germany. And I trained a bunch of teachers here to kind of jumpstart the fitness movement as we know it in the U.S. And it just organically evolved. And then I had an opportunity to teach in a school. My neighbor was a principal at a charter school and asked me if I want to come and do a professional development. You know, we know it was workshops. He said, sure, why not? And I did that for four to six weeks and they loved it. You know, they were like, whoa, what's this? And I was like, well, this is the magic. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. This is the magic. I'm a wizard. (laughs) Yes, I'm the wizard. (laughs) What is the difference for you as a practitioner and a student of martial arts between Chinese and Japanese martial arts? What's the fundamental difference? Fundamental difference. Wow, that's interesting. I would say, from my perspective, it would be the culture, the heavenly culture. Mm. So Chinese martial art is from heaven down to mankind. And the purpose of Chinese martial art is human development and spiritual development. It's done through the vehicle of what appears to be combatives. And because of China's history, there are plenty of time to have combatives, but there was also a heavenly culture, a divine culture, which was destroyed by the CCP. Mm. And so that's why we have what we have here now, because people had to flee. We wouldn't have probably the level we have of Chinese Kung Fu in America if it wasn't for the CCP. Mm. And they're still doing what they're doing now because they're, they're really, as I said, I'm a Falun Dafa practitioner and they have people in concentration camps right now today because they do Qigong meditation because you stand with your eyes closed. Wow. Because they want to separate from, see, there are values associated with Chinese Kung Fu, traditional Mm. values. You're supposed to be a virtuous person. You're supposed to be virtuous. You're supposed to protect the weak. That's the foundation for traditional and classical martial arts. Now, the Japanese, Japanese learned a lot from the Chinese because they traveled and from the Okinawans who also learned from them and also just you know, once you start to inculcate principles, mm-hmm. you then can make things your own. And so there's this big argument about, you know, Chinese Kung Fu versus Japanese this or, the, or Brazilian that. No one nation owns a monopoly on sunlight. No one nation owns a monopoly on truth. Professor Duncan used to say that. Mm. So if you teach me a principle, it's like that African, you know, you teach a man how to, how to fish versus giving them fish. Uh It's the same thing. Once you teach me how to fish and I get the principle, then I can innovate. I make it mine. And so that's what the Japanese did. 
And so you may see stuff that's more linear. You could argue with, oh, the, the system is like this, the system's like that. But they have many systems, and then you can dig into stuff, and you can see this, there are things that are really very close to aspects. And you have to understand the variety of Chinese Kung Fu is there are thousands of systems. So you'll find things in Japan that rival or look like some of the systems, and you'll find some things that look like certain aspects of the system. But you can find commonality in pretty much all of them, just like when you go to India and you see Kalari Payat. Mm see the connection between how that is with the yoga and you see the connection to Ayurvedic medicine. Chinese Kung Fu and Chinese medicine, five element theory, they're indivisible. Chinese Kung Fu is based on either the Tao or the Buddhist system. And I'm not talking about Buddhism. I'm talking about the Buddhist internal cultivation schools of which Buddhism is one. There are 84,000 cultivation ways in the Buddhist school and I think like 3,600 in the Tao school. So these are actually internal cultivation systems, a couple of which that have become religions, but the majority of which are taught from mentor to mentee, from master to student, and are not available to the public. A lot of the vehicles that people are able to transmit these disciplines is through martial arts. Wow. You know, it's interesting because I've always wanted to ask this question because I travel a lot and consider myself to be a a student of the world, and I have such respect for you, uh, for your travels. What, and some might find this controversial, Uh-oh. What, might, what might Americans, and particularly folks from Brooklyn, learn from Chinese culture or Japanese culture? What are some of the things that we can learn? Because we always feel like we're the epicenter, you know, we're the largest borough in the United States, we're, you know, have everything at our disposal. What, what can we learn that you've experienced as two things that we can learn from those two very rich, vast cultures and countries that have been around way, way before we have. What can we, we learn as a, a nation and as a borough from Chinese culture and Japanese culture? Well, I think we already have to a certain extent. That's the beauty of America, right? Is that we, we incorporate anything and everything that we make contact with. I mean, we have a robust Chinatown here in Brooklyn. We have a robust Chinatown in Queens, which is attached to Brooklyn. A lot of people don't know that Brooklyn and Queens are all on one island called Long Island, but you can just literally walk, you know, across that little line and now you're in Queens. So the crazy thing about the way we live is that we have voluntary separation and I understand it, right? Because people are naturally drawn to people who look like them, talk like them, in many ways think like them. But then we also have convergences and education is a great, you know, way to people converge. You know, you go to college and your roommate may be whomever, you don't know who your roommate is, right? Or your sweet mates or people you come in contact with. And all of a sudden it's like, you know, wow, these people who don't look like me or talk like me, they're pretty cool. I like this. And that's what we need more of. But the ancient cultures... And we really have to go back because in the case of China, you have to understand how impactful the CCP was in destruction of the celestial culture and changing the values that the Chinese people now have. This is not a criticism of the Chinese people. This is a fact that there was a design imposed on them that is not congruous with the traditional values that China came up with. That's just Mm. a fact. And so when you see... It was a very moral culture, and there was a lot of very high technology and high understanding of harmony with nature. And 
the Western culture tends to roughshod over nature. We're going to build this building here, whether or not it's incongruous with this hill or not. We just blast this hill down, it'll be flat. Mm-hmm. When you look at maps of Manhattan back in the day, Manhattan actually had streams and canals and apparently is one of the most biodiverse places on the planet. That makes me cry in my soul mm. to think how it's become like this blight, this piece of cancer on the land that just takes and does not give. That is not anywhere in any form, in any kind of celestial harmony with anything other than itself and unchecked cellular reproduction and just capitalism as its worst, laissez-faire capitalism, just totally unfettered, just build, 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 buy, 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 it doesn't matter what's there. And this kind of lack of respect for the harmony of the natural world is what's killing us. Mm. It's killing us. It's killing us dead. When you have air that you can't breathe or that causes you cancer and pulmonary distress. And when I have to check the AQI to see how many parts per million is in the air before I can get on my bicycle, that's a freaking problem. Mm. When older people and young people like my nephew who have respiratory issues are told that you should not leave the house or do any activity outside because today the AQI is high, that's a problem. When the water that surrounds the island is not only is it not drinkable, not bathable, but it can't sustain life, that's a problem. Mm. Particularly when it was totally and completely unnecessary. Because I've been in cities where people can swim in. In München, for instance, in Munich, they have the ice park, which runs right through the middle of the freaking city. They have a park. It's a wildlife sanctuary. And there's fish flowing through there. And you can, you know, swim in it. And you're not going to come out of there looking like the swamp thing. It's not necessary to poison your environment to be able to have commerce. It just isn't. It's mm. just a choice not to put any restriction or any guideline and just say that money matters more than anything else. Wow. It's, a, it's putting profits above people. It's, it's, I said this to a colleague of mine yesterday that there is no way in the world today someone is a racist unless they choose to be. Like it's a choice to be a racist. It's a choice to be xenophobic. It's a choice to be acknowledging that there's no global warming and that the world has changed because everything is showing you that it is happening. So it really is comes down to choice, don't you think? I don't. I don't think that because there's a little boy who lives on my block who's not the same ethnicity as me, and he's moving because his parents lost a job, and it actually kind of breaks my heart a little bit because we bond, you know, we get along, we're having a great time all the time. You know, he's on his fence, I'm on my fence, we're going back and forth. And I say that to say that he's growing up with other people who, he looks at brown people and they're his friends. But if you grow up in a neighborhood where everybody's telling you that brown people are the enemy and that brown people are like this, that not even people are animals, don't even give them the time of day. Don't even give them the opportunity. You won't. You won't. Because that's all you know. And there are people who will have experiences like the military is a perfect example of when the military was first being quote unquote integrated, which was not that long ago. When people found themselves in a foxhole together, and one guy from Alabama and another guy from Brooklyn, and one of them is white, one of them is black, et cetera, et cetera. And they found that basically. You know, they're sitting there living in each other's muck and trying to survive together. And they realize, you know, we don't have time for this. We don't have time for racism. Mm. 
the enemy is there. He's definitely trying to kill us both. He doesn't recognize the fact that you're white and I'm black. All he sees is red, white, and blue. He's trying to take us out. Mm. So we have to get with it. We got to win. We got to survive. So they come back and they're lifelong friends. Mm. And then one goes to visit the other in the town where the other one was growing up. And everybody's just like, who's that? You know, and I was going to use the N word, but I don't like it. Right. Or a couple go to school together and one falls in love with the other one and they go home to take mommy home and the white girl takes the, the black boy home and she's thinking, you know, my parents have always been cool and they've grown up and, they, you know, everybody's good and everybody's the same and then all of a sudden they walk in the house and everything gets quiet and then afterwards it's like, you know, don't ever bring that person here again. Hmm. And then she's perplexed. Wow. I don't I don't understand why my parents act that way. We weren't raised that way. I don't understand. I don't understand. It's like, yeah, because they were never tested. Mm. It was fine because it was over there. They never had to deal with it, never thought about having to deal with it. We weren't, we weren't real people. So I think it's complex, but I think it's really, really simple. Somebody said to me the other day that if you're a kid and your father throws a can on the ground or a bottle and the garbage can is right over there, more than likely, when you get older, you're going to throw that bottle and can on the ground, even though the garbage can is right there. And I think that's it right there in a nutshell. Because mm. I don't throw garbage on the street, and I don't understand how people do it. And I literally, literally have seen people throw a bag of garbage out of a car in front of my house. Wow. And been like, what the freak? The garbage can is in the yard. What is the matter with you? It's black, brown, white. It's just a mentality. We, we, the ignorance is not the providence of one race. We're all culpable. We are all creatively stupid. All of us. <laughs> That's going to be on a t-shirt real soon. <laughs> Copyright that. <laughs> yep. I want to just segue a little bit into the work that your company is doing, which I I always say is the work of angels. As the CEO of EM Arts, for those who are listening, our funders, uh, we have a lot of political people that listen, a lot of educators, artists from around the borough. Can you introduce your company to us and let us know, as the CEO, your vision and the work that you're doing throughout the borough of Brooklyn? Yes. EM Arts is a arts and wellness company, education company, arts and wellness education company, short defined. And what that means is that we do direct services to students where we do art programming of a very, very wide and varied sort. We have everything from magic to classical Indian storytelling, visual arts, martial arts, dance, any kind of dance, any kind of, any kind of art that has been created. If there is a teacher in the five boroughs mm. who is up to our standard and the school wants it, we will make it happen. And we have made it happen. And we do do work in the five boroughs. And we have a contract with the Department of Education, a multitask award contract for five years to do wellness services. And our wellness service was really how the company started in that I started teaching in a school with no, I just, you know, wasn't even thinking about starting a company. And um, they loved it and asked me if I would take over all the movement classes for the school at that time was 42 classes a week. So I brought in two teachers and the rest is history. Next thing I knew, we had a second school, a third school, a fifth school, a tenth school, and 
you know, can you do robotics? Of course we can. Can you do this? Of course we can, you know, and we've done it all and we've done it all well, apparently. And so when I go into a school, when I meet with a principal, first thing for me is, is the culture. What can we do for you? How can we bring our magic? How can our magic augment your magic? What can we do to enrich the culture? How can we support education? How can what we do help you? Mm. And arts is magic. Amen. It's sophisticated, is the most sophisticated, magical, educational experience that man has, period, end of story. If you mm. want to learn mathematics, there's no better way to learn it than music. If you want to learn applied physics, there's no better way to learn that than martial arts. If you want to learn how the human body functions and the range of the human senses and how to manipulate them, there's no better system than magic. And it goes on and on and on and on. You want to learn focus and creativity, painting, visual arts. All of these things are inherent in the study of any art form of note. And so we ask these children to become these people and we don't give them the tools. We ask them to be creative. We want them to be competitive. We want them to be innovative. We want them to have focus and drive and desire. But then we tell them that they have got to go to school or else. And so we don't right. take that approach. We want to find something that turns you on. And there is rigor in artistic study. Absolutely. There is rigor. And it is not easy. Anyone who's ever done anything you want to see rigor, you pop into the dance building at SUNY Purchase, or you go to Juilliard and you pop into the music program, or you pop into the art program when people are carrying not only their artistic credits, but also their academic credits, and they're still coming through. Mm. Mm. How, what do you say to critics who say that African-American kids, brown and black kids, learn differently than their white counterparts. Is that true or not true in your professional opinion? I have taught every nationality or person in the world and even went to the point where I had to learn a second language to be able to express. And I have seen one thing. People learn in a variety of ways. Some are visual, some are tactile, mm. some are more auditory. And then there's that intangible, some are more energetic they respond more to energetic communication because we, we communicate, there's an energetic communication between human beings that isn't recognized by the West. So those four things are keys for anyone considering themselves to be a teacher. Hmm. In German, it'd be called Ausstrahlung. It's that presentation, that energy that you push out. Hmm. And you can call it charisma, you can call it whatever it is, but if certain people walk in the room, all of a sudden it's like, boom, hey, that person's got something. I don't know what it is. You have that, actually, Mr. Randra. Oh, you have it, too. The it factor. The you it factor. Come in that room, and people are like, hmm, something going on with him, <laughs> and there's some power coming out. And I'm not sure, but it's, it's undeniable. And so if you want to say, are there cultural biases, and can you make a test that will be more beneficial to one than the other, I would say probably, but... In my humble estimation, that's not really what's going on. What I think is going on is inequality in instruction. If you give this person over here several million dollars in a state-of-the-art building with everything they can possibly do, and then you tell them they can do project-based, and they can go on hikes and learn about flora and fauna and 
then they have a room where they can meditate. And then after that, they can speak to a counselor and then they've got private tutors to help them with this and that. And then you go to another school and they've got outdated books. Mm-hmm. They can't go on field trips unless it's to McDonald's. They have poor nutrition and stuff served in the cafeteria. I wouldn't give to my enemy's dog. Mm. I would be shocked if those two students had the same chance passing a standardized exam that was designed by the people who gave money to the first school. Right, right. I would be shocked because the tests are being designed by the people who are, you know, they're connected. They know what's going to be on the test. They know how the test is going to be done. They're trained for it. So why would they not do better than somebody who does not have those tools? And despite that, I still got in the Bronx science. Despite yes. that, we have people of color who are beyond excellent. Because mm. what, what have we been told since we were children? You have to be twice as good. Yep. You have to be twice as good, which is a burden in itself because everyone is not twice as good. And so to put that onus on people that you have to be twice as good just to be recognized in the first place is rough. That means I have to be four times as good to even get anywhere. Right. It just so happens that I personally am. And I will go toe-to-toe with anybody in the entire world in terms of what I do. Right. I enjoy it when people think that they're on my level. I've witnessed you spar with politicians and other teachers and educators who have challenged your methodology and your beliefs. And it's really important, I think, for our listeners to remember you have to own your truth. You have to own your confidence because it's your journey. And I find so often in life when I meet people who don't stand in their truth, that they seldom make an impression in my life in the way that, for example, you have as a leader and as a humanitarian, as a citizen of the world. Would you say that that's true? I would say that there's so much adversity that we have to go through this as human beings. When you have two champions get in the ring, boxing, the normal common denominator that is, brings the person out on top is the mental attitude. We even talk about the mental attitudes of champions and the pain and suffering that we have to go through as human beings and the challenges that we have to overcome, rich or poor. The Buddha Shakyamuni said that all sentient beings are suffering, rich or poor. You can be filthy rich and your child gets a disease that can't be cured or your wife steps out on you or you are crippled in a plane crash. So no one's immune to suffering on this planet and no one's immune to adversity. Nobody. And I think if you don't believe in yourself, it makes your road much more difficult. And I'm not talking about being an egotistical slob. And I like to mess with people all the time. I tell them the best that freaks a lot of people out. Mm. But it's like, if I tell you the best, I'm the best at what I do, test me. Test me because I'm seeking an advantage. I'm seeking that I can prove that to you so that I can do good work and so that I can bring good work to you. And I'm not saying it just to be confrontational, not at all. I'm saying it because I want the opportunity to show the world that I'm really good at this and that what I have is a value and that I can really help people and that people really need this. People really need to be well. People really need to access. You know, you can't get the information I have anymore because mm. the teachers who gave it to me don't exist. Wow. He died. I'm standing on legacy. This is not me. This is me all the way back 5,000 years. It was passed down from one to the other. And so when people like me are around, 
what we want to do is we want to share that because we believe that what we have is good for humanity. I don't want to hold it in a box. I'm not a selfish person. Teachers are not supposed to be selfish. I'm not a performer. I'm a teacher. Right. Right. I want you to get it. And then I want you to surpass me. And that's what turns me on. Hmm. That's what turns me on. What is your dream for your life? At this point, you've accomplished so much. And as you just said, you stand on legacy. What is your dream as you look at the world today? What is the dream that you have for yourself personally and professionally? Well, personally, I want to strip my walls down and to be completely a spiritual being in that I am adhering to the laws and principles of my spiritual practice without omission, being a good person, Mm. without omission and without excuse. And then I'm weathering the storms and consequences as a spiritual person so that I can help to make humanity a better place and that I can develop and be who I'm supposed to be as a being. I like helping people. I enjoy being of service. But of course, like anybody else in this capitalist society, I have to make money. And so that causes me to make those choices based on what you can and cannot do. Mm. And I'm an entrepreneur and I enjoy that aspect as well. And what we'd like to see for our company is that we're in more educational institutions and that we can make more of an impact. Beyond that, I have an exercise and movement technique that is very rare and very powerful. I'm doing teacher training now. I'd like to see some qualified teachers in my teacher training program that can actually really absorb this information and go and take it and run with it and change society, change the way people are taking care of themselves, help people. I would like to see that our organization, EM Arts, has a greater place in the pantheon of the organizations that do arts in New York City and then nationwide and maybe even international. Mm. And that we, as a company of integrity, of world-class artists, are able to provide more work for our artists, more stability for our artists, and that we can work our magic on a higher level because there are organizations who, quite frankly, drop the ball every day, but they get contracts. Amen. I'm in the business of, this is what I would like. I would like to see quality rule. I would like to see nepotism fade. I would like to see quality rule. As I said, I'm willing to be tested. So if I'm telling you that I'm at a certain level and I have a quality program, do the taste test and see. And if my product is as I say, if I am as I say, then hire us and keep us where we should be. And if we fall and we falter, then I have no problem with you finding somebody else who's better. But if we're better, why aren't we alongside those giants? So it should be qualitative. And I'm not naive. I know that knowing people sometimes is more important than what you know. That's Mm. part of the problem. Our entire society is affected by this lack of integrity. I don't want the guy who's fixing the airplane to have gotten a job because his cousin was in the board. Mm. I want the guy who's been fixing stuff since he was a kid who can blindfold, take the airplane apart and put it back together and loves doing it. That's who I want working on my plane. Amen. 
I don't want the doctor who got into school because his pops got into school and then he didn't really like medicine that much, but you know, he got a C minus and he got through and he drinks a little bit too much. He's a little sloppy on the operating table, but nobody wants to say any because his pops is on the board at the hospital. I want the cat who is sharp, hungry, focused, does meditation before he operates, cares about people, not looking to have. I literally was in the OR one day watching because one of my jobs was to make up therapies. I was working in this clinic in Munich during ski season. The surgeon took out a book of perspectives of the car he wanted to buy and put it up on the glass while he was scrubbing up, talking about we can get three or four more in before noon because I want this car. And shortly thereafter, we're in the OR, and this is a true story, and it may not have occurred on the same day, me seeing him with the perspectives and then this actual occurrence. We're standing there, and I have the operating form in my hand tells me what they're going to do and what have you, blah, blah, blah. This is all in German, by the way, so I'm bigging myself up. So I look over, and I say to him, it's the wrong knee. You're about to make the incision in the wrong knee. Mm. And he looks over, he checks the manifest, and he says, ha, 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 you're right. And my blood went cold. Oh, my God. This happens every day. This happens all day. Mm. This is the kind of stuff that we shouldn't be fooling around with. We shouldn't be fooling around with mediocrity, man. Not in the OR. And we shouldn't be fooling around with him on the police force. Yes, and the OR is a metaphor for the world we live in. As we wrap up, I want to ask you a question that we ask all of our guests. What do you know for sure as you sit here today and we're chatting and you're looking at the world? What do you know for sure, my brother? (laughs) What do I know for sure? I know for sure that we are in deep (laughs) doo-doo. No, I mean, I mean it. I I know you do. I know you do. So I've been in the rainforest. I've been in the forest. I've been in the forest upstate so far. It takes you two days to get there. And I'll look down and there's garbage. There's broken glass, Mm. right? Where places where people generally can't get to or go. People don't understand up in the Adirondack Mountains where there hasn't been industry for like 100 years, there's acid rain. That's killing the state bird. How is that possible? Because New York City is one system. Right. We're all connected. When Chernobyl went off, there were friends of mine living in Germany who were like, we got to get out of here because the cloud is coming. Mm. We don't understand that this is one planet. Wow. The medicine that people needed for the daily life they have in the United States is coming from India. They were concerned, oh my goodness, there's no flights coming from India. How are we going to get this stuff? People depend on this every day. We're interconnected commercially. How come we can't get certain things? Oh, because this comes from Germany every day. They're the ones who make this and there's no flights coming in. We need to treat each other better. And we need to understand that if we screw this planet, we have screwed this planet up. If we continue to screw this planet up, if we do not really dig deep and look to find a way to harmonize with nature and stop trying to tell nature what the story is going to be, we're doomed. I look out my backyard. My wife was visiting her parents for two weeks before she left. She had done weeding. And we have 
concrete and we have dirt along the periphery and she does flowers and stuff. If you look out there right now, there's a couple of plants that are almost eight to 12 inches tall weeds that broke through that sidewalk in mm. two, three weeks. All we need is rain. If people think that they are so important, they need to look at how fast a plant grows through a crack in the sidewalk. In 50 years, there wouldn't even be evidence that there was a New York City. Wow. The animals would be here, the water would be clean, the plants would have taken over, and somebody coming from another planet or 100 years from now or 2,000 years from now would be like, it appears as if there was a big city here, but we really don't know what happened. Wow. They're doing that right now in Amazon. They're finding evidence of these huge cities that they, they're, they're, they're mind-boggled. It seems as if there were a couple of million people who were living here in the Amazon. We don't understand what happened to them. Okay. Well, if you don't understand what happened to them, stick your head out the window when you're in Manhattan and take a deep breath. Wow. And when you cough and you spew or you're in Beijing and you can't wear white because you're going to be black by noon, because of the soot, or in Mumbai, where you the first time they get to see the sun, and I don't know how long because of the pandemic, you realize we're in trouble. You know, it's been such a joy chatting with you today, brother, and such wisdom and pathos and heart. You really are an inspiration. And for those principals and superintendents and politicians who want to find out more about you and your organization, where can they do that? come to www.em-arts.info, I-N-F-O. I couldn't get .com. <laughs> www.em-arts.info. And you can also just punch in my name in Google search and a whole bunch of stuff comes up, of course. And as usual, Rahendra, you've got me into trouble. So now I'm going to have to relocate after this podcast is put down. <laughs> no, you have been such a breath of fresh air. You've been such an inspiration. And what I love about you, and I've told you this many times, is that you speak from the heart and you tell the truth. And in these very strange days we're living in, there is nothing that I think is more important to be putting out in terms of energy into the world. So on behalf of the NAACP, Brooklyn Branch, Arts and Equity. We salute you, brother. We Thank salute you. you as a man, as a citizen, as an administrator, as a Thank visionary. You. And we look forward to the next time. And we look forward to our collaborations, which we'll be sharing with our listeners in the near future. So God bless you and be strong. And to all those folks who are listening, I strongly encourage you, particularly those who are superintendents and educators and board of ed folks and politicians to please, please support this amazing organization, this organization that is predominantly by people of color, artists of color in Brooklyn. And for all those folks in the world who are struggling and are in pain, it's really important that we heed the words that Emery said today and really know that, you know, we are really one family, one world. Mm -hmm. And we'll leave it there. God bless. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.
The mission of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, is to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of rights of all persons and to eliminate race-based discrimination. The Equity in the Arts and Culture Committee seeks advocacy for artists in the borough of Brooklyn, builds bridges between funders, artists, and arts organizations within the borough of Brooklyn, promotes and presents events that celebrate diversity, inclusion, and the core mission values of the NAACP, celebrates artist-driven, radically inclusive, and fundamentally democratic art of, by, and for all people, especially those in the borough of Brooklyn, creates educational opportunities that support arts learning, affirms and celebrates diverse cultural heritage and extends its work to promote equal access to the arts in every community. If you would like to know more about the Brooklyn NAACP and how you can become a member of the community, visit our website at brooklynnaacp.org. That's brooklynnaacp.org.